This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. True crime. You love it, I love it. From podcast to video stream, we tut over the wickedness, wince pleasurably at the bloody details, theorise as to what really happened, and speculate on what punishments would be appropriate. Everyone loves it, except, of course, the people caught up in it. But do we ever think about them? People like Amanda Knox. I was guilty of losing interest in her story and never reaching its conclusion, which is that she was treated pretty appallingly, actually. The details have come out subsequently. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, does our obsession with true crime do real damage? I've always been interested in murder mysteries. My mother is a huge fan. She used to cut out newspaper articles of cases. I grew up with that around me a lot at home. We always used to watch Inspector Morse together on a Sunday night, for example. True crime was was there in the background. That's Rosie Kinchin, a feature writer at the Sunday Times. She's always been a fan of the crime drama genre. But since Rosie was little, public tastes have moved on. True crime is no longer in the background. Now it's very much front and centre. There are over 2,500 true crime podcasts currently available, while on our screens, Netflix, HBO and Amazon vie with each other to buy up the most lubricious tales. Rosie understands why. There's a real sort of scrap over who gets the best new cold case stories I watched The Making Murder, I watched The Jinx, and you know a lot of the early ones I think were very good. And then at some point I started to feel like the quality was deteriorating and it felt really quite salacious. I wrote a column for the Sunday Times about a programme that I'd just watched called Murder in the Outback about Peter Falconio and Joanna Lees. It was in the late 90s. They were young British backpackers. They'd been stopped in the outback and Joanna had escaped and Peter had apparently been killed and his body's never been found. There was this whole frenzy of excitement around her at the time and whether she was involved. And I've watched the documentary and felt that it had been really gratuitous and that it really didn't add anything. And it just made me feel kind of 
dirty by association for watching it, I suppose. I started to feel quite uneasy about it. Why was I doing this? And what did it say about me that I was so interested in these stories? And then it started making me think about whether there was some questions to be asked, you know, whether there was a, a series perhaps or something, a way of, of exploring the genre and what was happening that felt like it had some kind of merit, some integrity within it that we were trying to answer a question that mattered, which is, you know, this is happening, but why is it happening? And is it doing some good or is it doing more harm than good? Now, tell me what your series on true crime, tell me how you've approached it. It's called Criminal Minds and it's a different person every month. And the idea is to explore that story through the eyes of somebody who has been involved in it to try and get a sense of someone who's been swept up in kind of the machinery of true crime as an industry and how it has felt from their perspective. For Rosie, there was an obvious starting point. Amanda Knox made a nervous last journey into court for the climax of her murder trial. The body of Amanda's British roommate, 21-year-old Meredith Kircher, is discovered behind a locked door. Leeds University student from Causedon, Surrey, was found dead in her bedroom in the cottage she shared with defendant Amanda Knox and two Italian girls. As the packed courtroom listened, the verdict was handed down. This court declares Knox, Amanda Marie and Solicito Raphael guilty. Amanda Knox is a 33-year-old American. She's famous for being accused of the murder of British student Meredith Kircher in 2007 when they were studying in the university town of Perugia in Italy. Amanda was sharing a house with Meredith and she and her Italian boyfriend, Raphael Solicito, were both accused of murdering her. So they were accused. And what happened? Well, there was a huge amount of interest in the case, partly because it was international, I think. You know, Meredith was British, it was happening in Italy, Amanda was American. And then on top of which, very quickly became this sort of obsessive interest in Amanda's character in particular. I think it was probably a fairly early case where someone had put a lot of their own life on social media. So she was young, she had Facebook pages. There was one picture of Amanda like posing with a machine gun. It was probably on some school trip or something. A thoughtless photograph posted when you're 17, but it was then used as a kind of look at this crazy murderer alongside stories that ran about her. What happened with her trials? The first trial was in 2009 and she was found guilty. So I should also say that alongside Amanda and Raphael, there was a third person whose DNA was all over the room and he was Rudy Gede. His trial had gone ahead first and he'd been found guilty. Then her first trial went ahead in 2009 and she was found guilty and sentenced to 26 years in prison. But it didn't stick. No, it didn't. So in 2011, there was uh, effectively a new trial. I want to turn our attention now to Italy this morning, where Amanda Knox's attorneys are giving their final arguments, trying to convince an appeals court that her conviction for killing her roommate should be thrown Knox's out. Knox's defense team has one day of closing arguments to prove to jurors she was wrongly convicted of the murder of her British roommate, Meredith Kircher, in 2007. After four years in prison, she was released. She went back to America. It continued going through the Italian legal system. So the acquittal was then overruled. And then eventually the case went to the Supreme Court of Cassation, which is Italy's highest court. They ruled the case against her was without foundation and definitively acquitted both her and Solicito of murder. 
free of the reach of Italian law and now free of the label of murderer. Amanda Knox came out onto her Seattle doorstep after hearing the news from Rome. I just wanted to say that I'm incredibly grateful for what has happened, for the justice I've received, for the support that I've had from everyone. Where is she now? She is back in America. Her family come from Seattle. I started looking her up because I thought, I wonder what's happened to Amanda Knox. And I was surprised to find that she was now presenting a true crime podcast. This is the truth about true crime. I'm Amanda Knox. This season, I'm looking into a case that has haunting and almost unbelievable echoes of my own. And uh, I think she's, has she written a book? She has, yeah. So she wrote a memoir when she came out of prison called Waiting to be Heard. And then she got married and she and her husband present another podcast together called Labyrinths. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Is Labyrinths. And then she's also got involved with The Innocence Project. Uh, And what's that? It's a non-for-profit organisation in America which tries to help exonerate individuals who they believe have been wrongly convicted using up-to-date DNA evidence and working to reform the criminal justice system. She obviously has found a cause with people she identifies with. Yeah, that's right. How's the perception of her now? I think it's really interesting the extent to which people, particularly here, don't seem to have completely let go of the idea that she was involved in Meredith Kirch's death. You see it a lot on social media because every time she tweets something, the responses are really, really telling. And it's people sort of saying, God, this woman, does she have no shame? Like, why can't she just go and be remorseful? It's it's an interesting one. People are unwilling to accept that she is also a victim, that Meredith wasn't the only victim. To unpack our role as, how shall I put it, actors in, not just consumers of true crime stories, we're going to look more at the experience of Amanda Knox and also at a case that Knox herself has taken up. Rosie got the ball rolling. I emailed her and sort of explained what I was trying to do with the Criminal Minds series. And she got back to me and it was very positive. I think she'd read some of the columns that I'd written and she felt that we were sort of on the same page. It must have been quite something for you when she actually got back to you. Yeah, it was. And and it did then make me go and re-examine everything that's happened with Amanda's story in the recent years, because I suddenly thought, well, OK, let's just, <laughs> you know, where are we with this? Then it was a matter of figuring out what we were going to do. I sort of felt that her story was known and she's said what she wanted to say in her book and she's done the interviews about it and I didn't think that that would be the most insightful but I did listen to quite a few of her podcast episodes and there was this particular series really caught my eye it it didn't compare the series was called Killing for Love it's about a young German exchange student Jens Sören that's retired investigator Richard Hudson He's talking about a double homicide. In 1985, he was accused, along with his North American girlfriend, of murdering her parents in Virginia. Suring was ultimately found guilty of murder. There were reasons why his case in particular resonated for Knox. She had become interested in it because the case reminded her of her own experience. You know, they were both young 
when it happened. They were both in a foreign country. They were both in the middle of a huge media storm. And Jens's story is, is a very interesting one. Interesting it is indeed. If you want to read Amanda Knox's Criminal Minds Sunday Times piece and get access to all of Rose's articles and more, you can do it with a digital subscription to The Times and Sunday Times. You can get your first month free simply by searching thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Do you remember what it's like being in your 20s? I sometimes look back at that period of my life and laugh just as much as I cringe. If you do the same, then you've got to watch Queenie, the new original series on Hulu. Who is Queenie? Queenie is a 20-something-year-old living in London. She's facing all the firsts. First major heartbreak, first shitty apartment and soul-sucking job, first therapy session to work through those mommy issues. Can she turn her quarter-life crisis into a revolution? Maybe. Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. All episodes of Queenie premiere June 7th, streaming on Hulu. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My name is Amanda Knox. I am speaking to you from Seattle, Washington. One evening, me in North London, her on the west coast of America, I caught up with Amanda Knox. Beautiful, um, sort of cloudy day. Whatever I'd expected, she was nothing like it. This was one young woman who'd done some thinking. um, Before I became the centre of a true crime story, I was not a true crime person. That, I think, makes me an interesting entry point into examining true crime in general. I know from lived experience, real human lives are at stake. As Rosie had mentioned, Amanda is part of the Innocence Project, and it was through this that she came across Jens Söring. His true crime saga had begun back in 1985. Jens came into my life in part because there was this documentary coming out about his story, but also in part because Jason Flom, founding board member of the Innocence Project, is a really good friend of mine who's been advocating for Jens for a very long time. I wonder, Amanda, if you could give us a brief outline of what happened to Jens and what his case consisted of. 
Absolutely. So I'll try to keep it concise because it's quite the roller coaster. <laughs> Jens, 18-year-old German national living in Virginia, going to college in Virginia, meets and falls in love with 20-year-old Elizabeth Hasem, born in Canada, but has been living in Virginia with her parents in this small sort of tiny town out in the suburbs. And she is a troubled young woman. She was quite the rebel, but she was also this very, very sophisticated person. They fall in love, don't have quite the whirlwind romance that Raffaele and I had because Raffaele and I only knew each other for five days before we were arrested. They knew each other for many months. But over the course of their relationship, Elizabeth expresses overt death wishes on her parents. And one day, Elizabeth and Jens drive over to Washington, D.C., presumably to have a weekend getaway. But over the course of that weekend, Elizabeth's parents are horrifically murdered, huh? horrifically murdered. And Jens and Elizabeth feel the heat and they flee. They literally, like, leave the country and eventually they are caught in England. And while they're in England, Jens admits to killing Elizabeth's parents for her. And he says that he did so because as a German diplomat's son, he felt he had diplomatic immunity. And if he were to be found guilty, he would be extradited back to Germany and would only spend 10 years in prison, whereas Elizabeth would face the death penalty in Virginia. In fact, he was not protected by diplomatic immunity, and he and Elizabeth were extradited back to Virginia, where Elizabeth testified against him, and Jens told the truth, that he lied, that he didn't actually kill Elizabeth's parents, and he had only lied to protect her. But by this time, everyone believes that he did it. The really clincher in the case is that there is type O blood found at the crime scene. Jens has type O blood. So they go, it was Jens, done and done. Well, 16 years go by and independent experts test that, that blood, the type O blood. And by this time, DNA technology has advanced and that type O blood excludes Jens as a source. Mm. So someone with type O blood was at the crime scene, but it was not Jens. And in fact, they find the profiles of two unidentified men at the crime scene. But of course, just because it doesn't, it's not as simple as like, oh, whoopsie daisy, like get that guy out of here. No, he spends another, gosh, I, the, oh, in the end, he spent like 35 years in prison before he was eventually paroled. He and Elizabeth were eventually paroled. He was extradited back to Germany, where he is now a free man. Elizabeth was deported back to Canada. And there we are. That's where the case stands. Yen Soaring sentenced to two life terms after initially confessing. But ever since, he has maintained his innocence, as he told 10 News from prison in 2011. I'm not a murderer, um, but I was convicted wrongly 
And in the meantime, you know, while Jens has been professing his innocence since he was 18 years old, a lot of people didn't believe him, but then started coming around. And a ton of people have come forward requesting that the United States take another look at this case because the DNA just doesn't match up. Angela Merkel ha- was speaking out on Jens's behalf. So wow. it, it's a big deal. And yet there's this sort of entrenched feeling that, like, the local police got it right, even though one of the original investigators has since changed his mind completely about the case and says that Jens is innocent. Like, there has been incredible resistance to doing the full process of justice. However, he can't prove necessarily that he's innocent. That's the problem. And that's like one of the horrible problems for a lot of wrongful convictions cases where it's not as simple as saying, I clearly had like an alibi over here. The evidence that was used to convict him just doesn't hold up anymore. In November of 2019, after a total of 33 years in jail, Jens Söring was released on parole. The following month, he returned to Germany. He has not been pardoned. Ganz, ganz lieben Dank. Ganz, ganz lieben Dank. Also, äh, das ist ja alles ziemlich überwältigend hier. Ich, ich freue mich so, ich freue mich so sehr nach 33 Jahren. Really, like, this all starts with the accusation. As soon as you've been accused, people start thinking about you in a different way and are less willing to acknowledge the benefit of the doubt in this situation. So Elizabeth, being this like entrancing figure for a lot of people, her accusation against him had tremendous impact in his case. And in many ways, the way that Jens described how he felt while he was on trial professing his innocence is very similar to the way Raffaele, in my case, felt, where everyone didn't really care that he didn't have a history of violence and nobody cared that he ha- had his own agency and personhood and he wouldn't just murder someone because some chick told him to. Raffaele describes being Mr. Nobody and nobody caring about who he was as a person in this case. And in a very similar way, Jens was like that. And you took up his cause... Did you actually get to meet him at all? I've met him through the prison phone system and then through emails and phone calls. By the time he was released, COVID was happening and he was immediately sent back to Germany. I know it's tricky to make a judgment about somebody when you haven't actually met them in person. But as far as you can tell from those contacts, what's he like? Oh, um, gosh, Jens is... An incredibly thoughtful, let's see, how would I describe him? He's a very nice guy. He's very philosophical. He's very nerdy. And I love nerds. <laughs> so, like, I relate to him because he is someone who is a deep thinker about things. Right now, he's at this interesting point in his life where he came out of imprisonment to a quasi-freedom because he can't just go out and meet people. And he is trying to figure out what kind of life he can build for himself now. And he's reached out to me and been like, how did you do it? (laughs) And I'm like, I um, don't really have a formula, but here's some things to keep in mind. The biggest thing that I have been able to offer him 
is expectations about how the world is going to perceive you going forward. Unlike me, where I was definitively acquitted, vindicated, Jens doesn't have that. I've really had to like talk him off the ledge of being heartbroken over the kinds of hateful things that he has had thrown at him since he's returned to freedom. How to be at peace with the fact that other people are always going to be projecting their negative thoughts onto you. What you've just said is so interesting, which is about this projection. I mean, for many of us, we look at yours and Yent's stories, and I think that's a kind of complex psychological effect it has on us. Because on the one hand, we think to ourselves, well, at least it's not us, it's them. And on the other hand, we feel that we can still make our judgments, almost as if we'd been on the jury about who's guilty and who's not guilty, as if this is a drama and not real people. We are inevitably always going to be judged. The issue is, and the struggle is, what are we being judged based on? Are we being judged based on the narrative that someone has going on in their mind that is based on a lot of misinformation? Or is it going to be based on what is actually objective and reasonable? And we found that for some people, there is never, ever, ever going to be a right thing that you can do because they're always going to be seeing you through a lens of guilt. And that is a fascinating thing to live with because (laughs) it gives us like this really interesting daily reminder that reality can change according to someone's perspective. When I first got in touch with Amanda initially, one of the things that I felt as I've been talking to her is really quite guilty. That's Sunday Times feature writer Rosie Kinchin again. I was guilty of having been very interested in her story and then sort of losing interest in her story and never reaching its conclusion, which is that she was treated pretty appallingly, actually, the details that have come out subsequently of what the Italian police did, how flimsy some of that evidence against her was are really shocking. I still had her in my mind as that kind of foxy noxy, that story that I read about on the front page of newspapers. And and that's kind of grim in a way. It's not for us, of course, as journalists to take the sins of journalism entirely upon our shoulders. Mm. But do you feel when you look back and the way that some of these stories are covered that as a trade, we could have done it better? I definitely think that there are instances of that, and I think that this is probably one of them. The media definitely played a part in it, but so did the Italian police for leaking all of this information. I mean, one of the nastiest tricks they played on her was they told her that she had HIV, and so she wrote a list of all the men that she'd ever slept with in her diary, and then they leaked her diary. And this is before any of it's even gone to trial. Like, I know that there is an easy, fast way to make your living in this world, and then there's the hard Mm. way that is more responsible, but also doesn't always reward you. Like, if you don't get paid to do the long, hard work that doesn't get the catchy headline the very next day... Ultimately, newspapers print stories that people want to read. We have to take responsibility for what we're reading as well and how much we're driving it. And a lot of journalists who are just trying to make a living are going about it that way and feeling entitled to. And that doesn't, you know, mean that they are entitled to doing it that way and that they're off the hook, but they're working within a bigger system. 
Amanda and Jens's story also, both of those stories, show that media interest and general public interest is also essential for overturning wrongful convictions. And so we should keep asking questions and we should still re-examine stories because mistakes are made. And if you forget about them and if no one's talking about them, then they won't be corrected. Do you think that one of the main reasons that yours and Jens' stories are so interesting to people is precisely because there's a twist. You were acquitted, Jens has been released and parole granted. If you had just been guilty, found guilty and then found guilty again, you'd have been just one episode in a true crime series about terrible people. I definitely think that that twist does add to the interest in the story. But I think in both Jens's and in my cases, this story exploded in the public imagination long before evidence of our innocence Mm. was apparent and clear to people. Like, interest in my case exploded before people even had access to evidence. Like, there was eight months there where the investigation was still ongoing and technically no one could say what was going on, but people were going crazy speculating. And I think it more has to do with the fact that Elizabeth was at the center of Jens's story and in me because women who are accused of crimes or who commit crimes fascinate people. The idea of a psychopath female is just so captivating to people because it's so rare. It both goes against our stereotypes of women, but also reinforces a lot of like really nasty stereotypes about women. And one of the things that I've found in all wrongful convictions cases is that in a polite society, we like to say that we don't feel these stereotypes or prejudices against this kind of person or that Mm. kind of person. But as soon as any person is accused of a crime, suddenly everybody feels very comfortable expressing a ton of prejudice and stereotype against that person because they've been labeled bad. And whether that be a woman like myself or a young black man here in the United States. As you interact with Amanda Knox and others, is our obsession with all this doing us any good? I think Amanda's a really good example of how it can do both. It's a good example of the best and the worst of it. The worst of it was the salacious glee with which people devoured her, the details of of this 20-year-old girl's supposed sex games, when in fact it was a total fabrication. But the good of it is that there's an interest now in the stories that she tells about wrongful convictions and the fact that she's trying to, she thinks that there's something good to be derived from examining these cases in the right way suggests it could be used for good as well. I have a lot of friends who genuinely enjoy true crime, and a lot of them are young women who are doing a kind of like negative projection in the world as a sort of self-preservation, like a psychological self-preservation, where they go like, oh, if I know how serial killers really work, then maybe I'll be safer from a serial killer. So I don't know. I think that there's something deeply alluring about the psychology of it. But like for me, from my perspective, I'm just recognizing that there are problems with it and is there a way to do true crime in a way that is not only more responsible but actually can do good for the world 
that's sort of where my interest lies. Elizabeth Haysom, like Gintzering, was granted parole in November 2019. Haysom pleaded guilty in 1987 to being an accomplice to the murder of her parents. Unlike Suring, who was sentenced in 1990, she has never claimed she was innocent. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guests, Amanda Knox, a journalist and podcaster, and Rosie Kinchin, features writer at The Sunday Times. You can read more of Rosie's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer today was Will Rowe. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella. And if you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, you can send us an email by writing to storiesofourtimesatthetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.